Good morning. You know, Scripture tells us that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he promise and not fulfill? Does he speak and then not act? I think one of the hardest things to do is to trust God. And as we've been looking at the life of Abram and following his faith journey, we've been challenged in our own faith journey to trust God. And I believe that's intentional. I believe God wants us to not just read the scripture, but he wants the scripture to read us. I believe that we need to be in a place where we're receiving from God, but that we're hearing from God in a way that we can apply to our hearts and to our lives. And if that's not happening, then you're learning, but you're not really growing. And we need to do both. And so this morning we're in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to look at what in fancy terms is called the Abrahamic covenant. I'm just going to call it God's covenant with Abraham. Now, he's still named Abram at this point, but this covenant or promise, because that's really what a covenant is. It's a promise. It's God's promise. This covenant is a reiteration of the promises that he's made, that is God's made to Abram throughout his faith journey. And it has been a difficult journey. There have been failures. There have been successes. There have been challenges. There have been moments of rejoicing and moments of failure. But through this faith journey, Abram is learning to trust God. Here's the problem with trusting God, though. When you get to a place where you can trust him with the little things, which is challenging enough, he'll bring you to a place where you have to challenge him with the big things, which is difficult. But then you reach a place where you have to challenge your challenge to trust him with the impossible things. And that is beyond the challenge. It takes an impossible work of God, a miracle, to trust God with the impossible. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of your word. We pray that you'd apply it to our hearts this morning. Give us the ability, as we even prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning, this first Sunday of the month, give us the ability to absorb your word, to digest it, for it to be assimilated into who we are, and then lived out in a way that others can see and understand. That's a process we ask for you to do this morning in our hearts. And we ask for that to be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the Lord established his covenant with Abram, and this takes place after the battles and the spoils of war were rejected in chapter 14. We saw in the previous chapter, Abram got involved in a conflict that had taken place. He was not directly involved, but his nephew Lot was, and he was taken captive. And so Abram got involved, and they freed the prisoners. But he refused to take any of the goods from Sodom. He rejected the spoils of war, and he rejected the things of the world. But now, he's had a few moments to think, and he starts to think about all the things that God has promised him, And he looks at his circumstances, and he looks at the promises of God. And he looks at his circumstances, and he looks at the promises of God. And after a little while, as he looks at those two things, he begins to realize the promises of God are not lining up with my circumstances. My circumstances seem to negate the promises of God. How can I reconcile what God is saying with what is happening? God loves the world, and yet we see so many things in the world that call us to question, well, if God loved the world, why does he allow this to happen or that to happen? 
Oh, God is loving and he loves me and he loves my family, but why are we going through this trial? Why are we going through this circumstance? Why are things so difficult? Everyone comes to a place of what we refer to as a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. And Abraham has had some already. Ultimately, he's going to have many. It culminates in chapter 22 when he literally has the moment of faith crisis. When God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. So he's working up to a place where he can trust God with everything. But now, right now, he just has to trust God with his promises. And I'm going to suggest that each and every one of us are in that place. In in some way, shape, or form, each of us have received promises from God, whether it's the promise of eternal life or the promise that all things are working together for good or just the promise that he's with you and will never leave you nor forsake you through the hard times, the challenges, and the trials, and the tribulations. Each and every one of us are struggling to some degree, with trusting God. And by the way, I'm always suspicious of a Christian who says they're not. Because either they're trying to impress, or, or they're living in another world on another planet that I don't live on, because all of us are challenged in this way. So if you're here this morning and you feel challenged, say amen. Amen. But if you're here this morning and you trust God, say amen. Okay, so that we're good. Because we, we're challenged, but we also trust God. That puts us in a category like Abraham. We're in a place where we're learning to trust God each and every day. So the word of God comes to Abram in a vision to encourage him to trust in the promises of the great I am. And we read it in verse 1 of chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord, Jehovah, came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. Abram, I am your shield. Your very great reward. You could also translate that, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. I'm your reward. I'm your shield. What's a shield? A shield is a a means of protecting yourself from an enemy. A shield protects you from the weapons of our enemies. He's the shield. He's the reward. And his reward would be very great. Now, I want to remind you... Back in chapter 12 of this book, the Lord had first appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans in the area of Babylon. And while he was there, the Lord promised that he would make his descendants into a great nation and that the Lord would bless him. The Lord promised that he would make his name great, that he would be a blessing to others, that the Lord would bless his allies and curse his enemies. A bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. The Lord would bless all mankind through his descendants. And this specifically points to the promise of the Messiah. But at this point, Abram's not worried about any of those things. He gets to the word descendants, and that's where the problem is, because he doesn't have any. And so his circumstances don't line up with the promises of God. And everyone who finds himself at a place called the crisis of faith will have to decide whether they're going to believe in the promises of God or believe in their circumstances and deny the promises of God. So the the Lord speaks to Abram, but Abram is struggling. So the Lord appeared to Abram, and he promised to give his descendants the land. You can boil the promises of God to Abram, the covenant of God with Abram, to two things, descendants and land. Descendants and land. Now, here's the amazing thing, because we have the benefit of looking back now thousands of years, right? And if there's two things you can absolutely definitively say about the Jewish people is 
They're in the land, and they had many descendants. That is, Abram had many descendants, right? No one's going to dispute those two promises. Those are two things that are indisputable. They're in the land, and there are many descendants of Abram. But that's easy to look back now and say, oh, yeah, Abram, what are you worried about? You don't have anything to worry about. But throughout the history of the children of Israel, the Jewish people, there have been two great challenges to those promises. The first is the attempt of annihilation of the descendants, whether it be the pogroms in Russia, the Holocaust, the persecutions throughout the centuries, the desire on the part of the world and the world systems and the devil himself to annihilate, not just through anti-Semitism, but literally through genocide, to try to annihilate the descendants of Abram completely, And that has been the stated goal of many, and still is today. There are nation-states that don't object to the size or the location of Israel, but to the existence of Israel. And the second great challenge to those two promises, that second promise, the land. I don't think I really need to discuss this much. I think you know by now that most of the world, with the exception of the United States, and even that's questionable now because half our nation seems to have gone off the deep end and starts to embrace anti-Semitism. But we look at it and we say, well, most of the world, most people in the world would be very happy if the Jewish people didn't exist and they weren't in the land, and or they weren't in the land. There are some people that say, well, I'm not against the Jews, I'm just against the Zionists. The Zionists, of course, are the those within the Jewish people who believe they should be in the land. And there were 2,000 years where the Jews were not technically in the land, although there were always Jews in the land. But they weren't in control of the land. And there were times where they controlled a lot less land. But it's important because as we look at the world as it is today, it's not that we take sides in a conflict. You know, I'm on the side of God. And God is on the side of love and peace and not war. There have been times where God has called his people and other nations to judge his people. I don't believe we're in a time like that. I would not call the wars that we're seeing in our world today holy wars or acts of God. I think they're acts of wicked men. And regardless of what side you may feel you're on, it's not for us to take sides as much as it is for us to pray for peace. We we certainly would say no one here, I'm sure, would support terrorism or brutality on any side. But we're not here to discuss political issues. We're here to discuss the promises of God, amen? And the promises of God is that the Jews would be many, that is, Abraham's descendants would be many, and they would be in the land. So when you embrace a philosophy of wanting to eliminate the Jewish people or get them out of the land, you have said of the promises of God... I don't believe they're God's promises, which means you're defying God's word, and you're working on the side of the enemy. I want to qualify. Not justifying military actions or political philosophies, just that the Jewish people are called to be in this part of the world, and the fact that there are many descendants, that is the promise, the covenant of God to Abram. But isn't it interesting that those two major issues are the two things today that we see most contested in the world? But God promised. And, and when we look at the world today, we think it's, it's nearly impossible to believe that the thousands of years later that those 
two things would still be true. And, and with all of the adversity that the Jewish people have faced, even within the last hundred years, you go back 80 years to the Holocaust. It's not that long ago. There are people here that were alive, maybe, at that time. So what I'm saying is, God had made a promise, and we see now he keeps his promises. Amen? Well, the Lord, after he made these promises in Ur of the Chaldeans, appeared to Abram again, and he promised to give his descendants the land. It's a reiteration of those two major issues— Descendants, land. Descendants, land. And then, in chapter 13, the Lord promised to give the entire land of Canaan to his descendants forever. There are some, even within the Christian church, and even within Judaism, who would suggest that the promises of God were for a time, but they had an expiration date. You ever go in your fridge, and something doesn't smell right? Is it the milk? Let me check the... The milk. And why is it that organic milk lasts for like months and other types of milk last maybe a week? I don't understand that. What are they doing that... That's another question for another time. And I don't have an answer. But I do know this, that when the milk goes bad, you know, right? Because it has an expiration date. And you look at that and you think, okay, that's it. Done. Maybe it's buttermilk now. But I do know this. The promise of God to Abram doesn't have an expiration date. So those of you who are wondering, well, have the promises of God changed? Of course not. The promises of God are yes and amen. Amen? Oh, have they so defied God by the rejection of Jesus Christ that God has withdrawn his promises? Well, I don't know. God doesn't make promises on the basis of our faithfulness, does he? I hope not. Because I'm in trouble if that's the promise of God. The promise of God to us is based on our faithfulness. We might as well go home right now. So this was reiterated in chapter 13. Yes, Abram, I'm going to give ye the entire land of Canaan to your descendants forever. Forever. Okay. And then the Lord promised to make his descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. We'll see eventually the stars in the sky. So again, those are the promises of God. Now, here's Abram's response. And I love this because if Abram just sort of walked on water and said, yes, God, I believe you no matter what, this wouldn't be a very interesting Bible study. It also would be a little hard to believe. But we read in verse 2, but Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord. By the way, that phrase means the God who is in control of everything and can do everything without question. So there is faith there, O sovereign Lord. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And that's a very good observation of the circumstances. It doesn't take into consideration the promise of God, but it is an accurate assessment of his circumstances. And this is where we get into trouble. When we evaluate our lives and our circumstances based on our perspective and rule out the impossible. You can't rule out the impossible with God. Can I hear an amen? There are some things that are difficult for us. There are some things that are easy for us, depending on who we are. Like reaching the top shelf in the kitchen, not easy for me. But I have a step stool for that. So, like, I realize there are some things I can do that are easy and some things that are, that are difficult, but there are many things that are impossible. And when I learn that something's impossible, I either say God can't do it, or I say God can do it, or I say God might do it, but at the end of the day, I have to trust God. 
The sooner you get to a place where you trust God with the impossible, the better off you'll be. So I oftentimes say, well, it's impossible. Or people will say, well, pastor, that's impossible. Yeah, isn't that great? Because if it's impossible, it's going to take a miracle. If it's going to take a miracle, it's going to take God. If it's going to take God, it's going to be good. So I look at these things differently nowadays, maybe because I'm getting a little older. But the impossible doesn't scare me anymore. So Abram had begun to doubt the Lord's promises because he had no children. There was no evidence that God could fulfill the promises he had made. He believed that God was sovereign, that he could do anything. But he also realized that God's promises were totally dependent upon one key component. How can I have descendants unless I have a child? And how can my descendants inherit the land unless I have descendants? It's logical. But God is so much greater than logical. He's miraculous. He does the impossible. So he knew that only God could give him the blessing of a child, as his wife Sarai was barren. So there was, there was really no chance, uh, at least at this point, they, they hadn't considered that they might be able to make this happen on their own. They tried that. We'll see, that didn't work out very well either. But he had arranged to have his servant Eliezer inherit his estate as his sole heir. And it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't an uncommon practice at this time for childless couples, people without descendants, to adopt an heir. And that happens today as well. You adopt an heir. This person, when I'm gone, will receive my inheritance. And in fact, the adoption contract would be amended if if they did end up having a natural son and uh, a legal heir was born. But in the meantime, there was a contingency, a beneficiary, if you will, who would receive all that they had should they pass without having descendants. So the word of the Lord came to Abram to once again confirm this promise of his son who would be a sole heir. And, and Abram needed to hear this, but I want, I want to point this out. Abram needed to hear it, and so God needed to say it. Abram needed to hear it, so God needed to say it. Now, God didn't need to hear himself say it, but Abram needed to hear him say it. And if you're in a place in your life where you just need to hear God say something to you that you know that he's promised or or that you know he's good and his word testifies to, best place to be is in God's word. Because you're going to hear the promises of God over and over again. And by the way, parents, you know this, occasionally you have to repeat yourself when you speak to your children. Occasionally, right? It's like they don't always get it the first time, right? Or why is it that you say something, now I'm going to go in the kitchen When I come back in the living room, I don't want you to be playing ball in the house. Why is it that when you go in the kitchen, they're still playing ball in the the living room? Why? Because people, kids, we don't listen. So God repeats himself a lot. And one of the most repeated, if not the most repeated phrase in Scripture is, do not be afraid, fear not. So why do you think he repeats that? Because most of us, if we were to take a little poll today, you know, if we had the technology, well, the technology exists, but if we had one of those things and each of you had one of those little buttons, you know, they do that polling. How many people here, you know, anonymously, how many people today are, are a little fearful? And we'd see the numbers, that'd be pretty cool, actually. The numbers would go up. How many people are somewhat fearful? How many people are very afraid? I'm sure the numbers would be high because, and I want to caution you to not do this we have a tendency, and I sometimes hear you guys talking, you know, and uh, I understand that many of you are fascinated with prophecy. I'm fascinated with prophecy. But does it really do a lot, our faith a lot of good to walk around saying, you think China's going to invade Taiwan? You think Iran is going to bomb Israel? 
cares what I think? And you can make a case in the Bible that it's going to happen, that it's not going to happen. But at the end of the day, is that really productive? I, I find many times, and I don't like when pastors do this, they get everyone afraid. Like, you come to church, and you're feeling pretty good, right? You know, I just need to be encouraged in the Word. You go home, and you build a bomb shelter. Something wrong with that teaching. Now, it could happen tomorrow, or it couldn't. But last time I checked, I, I received pretty good word from the Lord. Don't take too much thought for tomorrow, right? Don't, don't. The evil is sufficient for today. Now, that's directly from Jesus. So I think I'm going to go in that direction. If it's okay with you, I don't like entertaining fearful conspiratorial thoughts. I'm not saying there is a valid reason to be concerned. But I think dwelling on it is counterproductive. So fear not is the Bible's most encouraging words. Fear not, because it means when you trust God, whatever happens tomorrow, you need not be afraid. Amen? Good. Let's get that out of the way, because I'm not a fear monger. I don't like it. I think it's counterproductive, and I think it sells a lot of books and brings in a lot of people into church. But other than that, I think it's very uh, counterproductive to our faith and our growth in Christ. So the word of the Lord comes to Abram, and, and essentially... This, this encouragement is that, listen, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man, that is Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. I love object lessons. You know, sometimes it's good, especially with kids, and especially when you have to repeat yourself, sometimes it's good to say it differently, right? Because Jesus did that with his disciples. He would say something, he would say it again, he would say it differently. We call that reiteration, not repetition, reiteration. It means saying the same thing differently in in a way that people can receive the truth. And it's very important to do that, especially with children, because they don't always get it the first time. Right? Children who are over 40? We don't always get it the first time, or the second, or the ninth, or the tenth time. So here's what happens. There's this encouragement that his servant would not inherit his estate because he would have a son. So even though they had that adoption contract, so to speak, of the the adoption of an heir, it's not going to come into play because there's a clause in the contract that says if you do have a son, the son will inherit everything. So the Lord promises to make, he promises to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's a lot. That's a lot, okay? And even if you could count them, it's more than that. And so what does Abram do? And I just want to say this. I I love that Abram doubts because it helps me to understand I'm not alone, but I love that Abram trusts because it inspires me to trust. Because here's what happens in verses, uh, actually, it's just verse 6. Abram believed the Lord... And he credited to him as righteousness. And there we have the righteousness that comes by faith. Predicted in the Old Testament. It is expounded upon by Paul and others in the New Testament. The righteousness that comes by faith. There is a righteousness that is a rightness. Sometimes righteousness is a little hard for us to understand. But rightness is easy to understand. Correct. Right. Right with God. Righteous. So Abram trusted 
in the Lord and in his promises. And all of this despite his desperate circumstances. Not difficult, desperate circumstances. According to Hebrews 11, verse 11, Abram believed God's promise and was accepted by God as righteous. So why was he righteous in the sight of God? Because he believed in his promises. Not because of what he did, but because of what he believed. Each and every one of you here today, if you're right before God, are right because of what you believe, not because of what you've done. And it's a good thing because we've done some pretty bad things. There's a history in our lives of bad decisions, bad thinking, bad actions, that if we tallied it all up, we don't stand a chance to be made right in the sight of God. But see, we're not made right by our actions. It's not by works. It's by faith that we're made righteous. So this is one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture, this verse that comes up over and over again in the New Testament, that Abram believed the Lord and was, it was, or he would, credited to him his righteousness. So that, that concept is actually one of the foundational stones of New Testament thinking and theology. It, it, it's as if if you took that out, the whole house would crumble. Because when you have a church or a teaching or a denomination that removes the concept of justification by faith, that is, being made righteous in the sight of God because of what you believe, not what you do, then the whole experience becomes very, I want to be careful not to offend anyone, Catholic. I wasn't careful. But you know what's interesting? The word Catholic, I didn't say Roman Catholic. I didn't grow up Roman Catholic. I grew up Anglican Catholic Do you realize that the word Catholic just really means universal? It it really isn't a description of a church. It's a concept. It's this idea that the church is your means or mechanism of salvation. So we're not picking on a denomination. We're not picking on anyone. We're just saying if your concept is you say these creeds, you do these things, you accomplish these sacraments, and somehow now you're justified by God, you have removed the foundational stone of justification by faith. And now the building falls. Like that church, I believe it was in Massachusetts or Connecticut, it was up in New England, I believe, where someone was in the church, they were praying, good thing, because they survived, and I think the steeple and the whole roof just caved in. That's what happens, that's what's happening to the church in, in America, even in the world, as they've removed this foundational stone, as we've gotten away from this concept of being justified by faith, what we have experienced is a collapse Because if this thing is a foot race, some of us are going to fall behind. Some of us are going to trip. Some of us are going to fall and hit our faces. If this thing is a race, if this thing is a competition, then not everyone's going to win. And those that do, if in their own minds, turn around and look over their shoulder and disdain and despise with contempt those who haven't finished the race. Paul said, I finished the race. I fought the good fight. But it wasn't what he did, it's what he believed. And the fact that he continued to believe to the end. Amen? So if we can embrace justification by faith, we're, we're going to be able to, to do this thing called trust in God. It, it almost sounds contrary. It's like, if you trust God for eternity, you can trust God for the little things. Oh yeah, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That actually makes a lot of sense to me, doesn't it? It's pretty logical. I mean, if you can trust God for eternity in heaven and that you're saved not by your works, but by your faith in him, 
then do you have a hard time trusting him if next week there's an invasion or something terrible happens or a terrorist attack, that God is still on the throne, that you can trust him? See, if you can trust God with the impossible, and by the way, it is impossible for us to be made right in the sight of God, and yet we are through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, amen? But if you can trust God with that, then all these other things, eh, not, so, not so bad, not so difficult. So this concept, it's so significant that it comes up in Romans and Galatians and the book of James and Hebrews. And it teaches us that our standing before God is entirely dependent on faith and not works. And I caution you to think about removing that. Do not think about removing that from your way of thinking in your relationship with God. Churches that have have collapsed. The roof has literally caved in on churches like this. So what about Abram? What did he do? He's he's 85. And what is it that helped him to trust God through this process? Well, I have to go to Romans and read a very enlightening scripture. And it starts in verse 18. And I like this because it starts with the word against, the words, against all hope. Against all hope, in chapter 4 of Romans, in, in verse 18, I'll read it for you. Against all hope, Abram, Abraham, he calls him here, but Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. And just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, and yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So there's your answer. And that really is the description of how Abram came to a place of trusting God with the impossible. First, and I want to break it down, there are three things here, and we're going to have to do this in our lives, so you might as well make note of it, whether you write it down or not. And the first thing is this, that he didn't consider the impossibility of his circumstances at 85 years old. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. He didn't even consider the impossibility. Now he was challenged, God encouraged him, and now we find out he didn't consider the impossibility of his circumstances. So that's the first thing. Don't even consider the impossibility of your circumstances. If you sit around thinking, not even God could do this then you're considering the impossibility of your circumstances. But he didn't do that. He faced the truth. He didn't live in a, in a delusional universe. He, he didn't lie to himself. He, he didn't pretend the circumstances weren't impossible. He just didn't consider the impossibility of his circumstances with God. So he faced the truth of his own impotence. He faced the truth of his wife's infertility. He faced the truth, but... And here's the second of the two points. Not only didn't he consider the impossibility of his circumstances, he didn't stop believing in the promises of God. He didn't stop believing in the promises of God because his faith was strengthened through testing. Does that sound familiar to anyone here today? Right? His faith was strengthened through testing. And so we go back to that scripture He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And so then we realize also he not only was strengthened in his faith through testing, his faith actually enabled him to praise God in his trials. Here's a litmus test, a measure of whether or not you're trusting God. Are you praising God? Do you know that it's impossible 
to praise God unless you're trusting God? Think about it. Oh, we're praising God. It was great. You really can't praise God unless you're trusting God. Because if you're not trusting God and you sing the songs, you're kind of hypocritical. You know, in your heart, you say, I don't believe, I don't believe this. I, a good song. I like, I like the tune. Really appreciated the guitar work on that. But, but you're not really praising God because in order to praise God, you've got to trust God. It's very simple. By faith, it's impossible to please him without faith. But by faith, we trust him. By faith, we praise him. So that's the thing. And when I read that scripture, it says, he was strengthened in his faith. And gave glory to God. I realize that's the outcome of being strengthened in your faith. So you're trusting God. The result and the test is that you're giving glory to God. And that's why it's so important to praise. Because if you're not there, it might just push you over the edge to praise God. Listen to those wonderful hymns or those praise songs that encourage us to trust God. And sometimes you start the song not trusting God. And you get to the end of the song and you're trusting God. That's a work of God's spirit through worship and praise. And that needs to happen. I think every time we get together on a Sunday or a Wednesday or on our own private worship time, that should be the outcome. And if it's not, we should keep going until it is. So the first thing, he didn't consider the impossibility of his circumstances. And the second, he didn't stop believing in the promise of God. You see, sometimes faith is what you don't do. He didn't consider the impossibility. He didn't stop believing. Third, he didn't doubt God's ability to do the impossible. That's the third thing today. He didn't doubt God's ability to do the impossible. Verse 21 of Romans 4, being fully persuaded. How persuaded is fully persuaded? Fully persuaded. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. There's two things there. God can do it, but the second thing is more important. He said he would. See, we, we, we actually, most Christians believe God can do anything. Just many Christians don't believe that he will. Oh yeah, I believe God can do anything. I just don't believe he will. So that's why when it says, being fully persuaded that God had power, I think most people say, yeah, I believe God has all the power in the universe. And then some. But notice to do what he had promised. Hmm. That's where we fail. It's not so much that we don't believe God can't do it. It's just we think he won't. So sometimes faith is a matter of what you don't do. You don't consider the impossibility of your circumstances. You don't stop believing in the promises of God. I resisted the urge. And you don't doubt God's ability to do the impossible. He trusted in God's power, but he trusted in God's word. Having faith means you trust in God's power, yes, but you also trust in his word, his promises. His word is a collection of his promises. And if you're not in the word, you're not going to know his promises. You need to know the promises of God, especially in these dark days. I don't dispute that the days are dark. I just believe God is greater than our circumstances. I believe his promises are sure, and I believe he can and will do the impossible. Amen? Oh, that's Abram. And so what happens? Well, look at verses 7 through 21. Back in Genesis 15. The Lord says, He also said to him, I am the Lord. You know, you could stop right there. That pretty much answers the question. I am Jehovah, 
who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now notice, Abram. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, again, the God who can do anything has the power. How can I know that I will gain possession of it? How many men and women of God through the centuries have said, I believe you, but help my unbelief. That's us, right? I believe you can do anything. Just reassure me that you can. It's kind of what he's saying. Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? It's also a really good question. How can you know the promises of God are yes and amen? How can you know? And people have asked me that question. Oh, pastor, how can I know? Well, it's in his word, and you can trust his word, and that's how you can know. But here's what we read. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Nabram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. And the birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, No. No. How can I know? No. For certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward... They will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sins of the Amorites, uh, excuse me, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Well, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of the Wadi of Egypt. That's not the Nile, by the way. From the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. There you have God's promise to Abram. And again, it comes down to these two things, descendants and land. That's how you would simplify the promise. There's a little bit more to it than that. But in that promise, there's a prophecy as well, as we'll see. And here I want to point out the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abram to confirm this promise. And God confirms his promise. And that's important to know. It isn't just that God says something and you just have to believe it. He confirms it in your heart, sometimes through a vision. In this case, through an extraordinary set of circumstances, He confirms his promise of the land to his descendants, and the Lord reminded him of his promises back in Ur of the Chaldeans in chapter 12. And Abram asked the Lord for confirmation. Now, this is very important, because I've heard people say, you never want to use a fleece, like Gideon. You know, he put out a fleece. And yet, he put out a fleece twice, and God confirmed. And then I've heard people say, well, you want to use a fleece all the time. But then I remember Thomas, who said, well, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch him with my hands. And he said, it's great that you believe, but better are those that have not seen and believe. So what's the answer? Yes. Oh, and yes. There are times in your life where you need confirmation. And there are times when you don't. And when you need confirmation, God will provide it. And when you don't, he won't. 
That's almost like letting God be God, you know? How we make demands of God that he has to prove to us or, well, God, I'm not going on this mission trip unless you confirm that I'm sent. Oh, sovereign Lord, I believe you can do all things. Just help me with my unbelief. That's what it sounds like to me. So, yeah, there are times where you really need confirmation, and God is going to give you all the confirmation you need. And there are times where he's not going to because you don't need it. And in this particular circumstance, maybe you need to trust God. Listen, Abram was being asked to trust God with a lot. A lot. And he received confirmation. So I can't tell you when God will confirm and when he won't in the way that you want him to, but in this case, he did. Abram asked, and he gave it to him. The Lord confirmed his promises to Abram, and he did it through what we call a blood covenant. Now, there are covenants throughout the Bible, and this is one of the first covenants. Not the first, but one of the first in the Bible. He directed Abram to sacrifice several clean animals and to divide them. Not the birds, but all the other animals. Now, if you look at this, you're like, this is really weird. This is so bizarre. But it's actually not. Because the covenant ritual was typical for the confirmation of a treaty in the ancient world. This is how they would confirm treaties. They would take the sacrifice, divide the animals, and the people making the covenant would walk between the pieces of the animals. And what they were actually saying through allegory or through example was, if I violate this covenant and this promise, may I end up like those animals. It's a blood covenant. It's saying, may I die. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I don't do what I said I would do. That comes up a lot in scripture. But in Jeremiah, and um, where was it? Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, you actually see these individuals in Jeremiah 34 making a covenant. And this is exactly what they do. They divide the animals. So it was very visual, very dramatic, but it's essentially saying, I am committing my life I will fulfill this promise. Putting my life on it. That's what's being said. But I want you to notice something. Did Abram walk between the pieces? No. So when you would make a covenant between two people, the two people would walk between the pieces. But that's not what's happening here. The presence of God is what walks between those pieces. I want to read that again. When the sun had set in verse 17 and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, the Shekinah glory of God is described in this way, a smoking fire pot uh, uh, with, with a blazing torch. So smoke and fire. Sound familiar? The Shekinah presence of God, the glory of God that was above the tabernacle, that was above the temple, that was, you know, with Moses in the wilderness, the Shekinah glory of God that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, the the presence of God. The presence of God appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God made the promise. And Abram received it. It's not a conditional promise to Abram. It's a covenant promise by God to Abram. Very different. You need, we need to understand that. Help us to understand that the promises of God to the Jewish people are still intact today because God is faithful. Amen? It has nothing to do with their faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. It has to do with God. So, he spoke to Abram while Abram was in a dreadful darkness and in a deep sleep. And he predicted something. He predicted Israel's 400 years of slavery. 
in Egypt. And that doesn't sound like a promise I want. Yet it was the truth, as we know. He also predicted Israel's deliverance from Egypt as well. He predicted Abram's long life and his peaceful death before these things even happened. And then he predicted Israel's return to Canaan after four generations in Egypt. Now, the 12 tribes of Israel traveled to Egypt with their father, Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel traveled to Egypt with their father, Jacob. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. Levi one of the sons. He traveled to Egypt and had three sons, one of which was Koath. Koath had four sons, one of which was Amram. Amram had three children, one of which was Moses. Moses delivered the people of Israel after four generations in Egypt. Anyone want to tell me if God is faithful? Give me an amen. Amen. So exactly what he said wasn't all good news. There were some tough things that were about to happen, but it happened, and what God said happened. Because the promises of God are sure. And when he tells you something in that way before it happens, you can bet it's going to happen. And so he also predicted the coming judgment of the Amorites for their many sins. Now, the Amorites at that time were, were still allies of Abram. We found that out in chapter 14. They had not yet become as wicked as they would ultimately become in the future. And the Lord would ultimately judge them during the conquest, the book of Joshua, which we'll get to someday. But but that day is not today. And so God is not, not going to judge them until it's time for them to be judged. Notice, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That is, there's still hope for these people. Even though God knows what's going to happen, I'm not going to judge them yet. Aren't you glad God dealt with you like that? When you were an Amorite? Remember? God didn't judge you when you deserved judgment, and you still do, and he still doesn't judge you. You can trust God. Amen? God is good, even to the Amorites. (laughs) Well, then he sealed the covenant with his glorious presence, The Shekinah, the glory of God, the kebab, the weight of God, passed between the pieces of the sacrificed animals. Again, covenants were established by both parties passing through the pieces, but only God swore an oath by passing between the pieces, not Abram. Only God. I really like promises that are made by God. I'm not so keen or sure of promises made by others. Social Security. It's a promise. Does anybody believe that promise? God didn't make that promise. Good luck with that. See, the thing is, there are promises in this world that we believe in. Now listen, there are promises that people make, and they fully intend to keep the promises, but if it's me or you or one of us that's trying to keep that promise, I don't know how I feel about trusting that promise. But if God has made the promise, God is faithful. Amen? So the Lord confirmed his promise of the land to Abram's descendants from the Wadi of Egypt in the south. Again, not the Nile River. If you, if you like maps, you can look at a map. And on your way from Gaza, down south, as you're heading towards the uh, Nile, you come across what's called the Wadi of Egypt. It's just a little brook that comes in off the Mediterranean. And it's not quite down to the Nile. That's where the promised land ends. By the way, as of right now, 
I believe the border between Egypt and Gaza or the Egypt, uh, Egypt and Israel is a few miles. I think I checked it out. It was like 15 miles or something like that. It's a very sh- short distance from the Wadi of Egypt. So they're virtually in the southern border of where the land is supposed to be. Now, the northern border, of course, is the Euphrates River, and that would be all the way up into the areas beyond the Golan, all the way up into the areas of like, you know, uh, above Jordan and uh, Iraq and uh, even into Syria. And, and quite frankly, they do not have that portion of the land yet. So, he did tell them, though, that he would displace all the Canaanites in order to give them this land. So, if you have a problem with the fact that God said, I'm taking these people out of the land because I'm judging them, and he did eventually, during the time of Joshua. If you have a problem with that, and you think that God is not being fair, let me remind you, God is so much greater and better than fair. You might say, well, I don't like that God took sides in that conflict. God never took sides in any conflict. That's not what's happening here. He made a promise. And God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your encouragement from your word. Help us to remember that you keep your promises, that you're faithful to do so. And Lord, while we are very enlightened by your word as it relates to this covenant to Abram. And we think about history and the Jews in the Holy Land. That's secondary to the application today, which is, can we trust you with our lives? Can we trust you to keep your promises to us? And it starts with the greatest promise ever made, that you would send your son to die on a cross for our sins, that he would be raised from the dead, ascend into the heavens where he would ever live to make intercession on our behalf and his promise that is yet fulfilled to come again to judge the living and the dead. These promises, this promise, the promise of the gospel is what we put our faith in and we believe it with all of our hearts. And Lord, as we receive the communion elements, that's an outward sign that we believe your promise and you confirm that promise through the death of your son and his resurrection. In that case, you did give us confirmation. Now we need only trust you. Help us to trust you. Give our lives to you afresh and anew if we've given them to you before and if we've never given our hearts to you. May today be the day that we, like Abram, do what you've called us to do and trust in your promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.